Hello again, lovely listeners. This is Devin and my partner and co-host, Vince Bullock. Vince Bullock. There we go. And uh, this is episode eight of Untold Wealth, your favorite economic history podcast. And uh, boy, do we have a good one for you uh, for you this evening or or this this uh, afternoon, however, whenever you're listening. Um, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, let me explain how this works. Vince and I were both economics nerds, and by that it means we studied a bit of economics when we were in university together, but uh, the passion has truly lived on. Um, and naturally, we decided to start a podcast, talk about all these topics we've been chatting about over the years with each other, and share it with the world for good or for bad all right so we come together we uh theory craft some titles and ideas for the podcast uh and we both go our separate ways and research that specific topic sentence uh independently and then we come together we chat about it and it's always good fun so vince could you tell us this topic sentence for episode eight i podcast? would be Happy to. This week's topic sentence is, here's why you're poor. Explained. Which, I mean... It's very inflammatory, and I love it. It's inflammatory. It's it's such a 21st century tagline. I mean, who's not going to click that when they're, when they're scrolling through <laughs> YouTube, right? Um, I feel like it also definitely got influenced by all these... TikTokers nowadays that say they earn like twenty thousand dollars in yes. twelve hours or whatever. Um, I think it's right up there. It, it, the inspiration that I also got from it was there's some videos by Vox on YouTube that always have like da 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 da, da explained and explained. Oh, it's a classic. Here's why you're poor. It's just such a. I think it's it's gonna be you know <laughs> hopefully we deliver. I think we will. But uh, well, well, let's see. Let's see where we differed in. And why and why our listeners are poor? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> okay. So um, we we haven't discussed these topics with each other, nope. but um, to give you some, you know, some of my methodology behind my research, I was kind of thinking along the roots of I was I was going to tackle the financial system, and I I came up with two reasons why I think people are poor today. Okay. Um, one of them is, is quite grounded in reality, and the second one is a bit more abstract, um, and a bit more philosophical, if you will. Um, my reason number one is you are poor because the financial sector is deliberately obtuse. Um, mm. And deliberately obtuse is one of my favorite lines from Shawshank Redemption, if some of you have watched that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the financial sector honestly is just that word deliberately obtuse. It makes no sense from an outsider's point of view. And even if you come from a financial background, I mean, Vince and I didn't study finance in in university, but we know of different instruments you can use, but there's such a stark difference between not knowing something, knowing of something, and then actively participating in, in that thing. And specifically the financial sector. Absolutely. We know about options. We know about stops. We know about puts. We know about index funds, retirement annuities. But there's so much more that goes into it. Little tricks of the trade, sites you can use, different calculators, you know, even learning a bit of uh, 
a bit of coding to, I mean, what's the word? Python. You can mm. you can literally learn coding like Python to automatically withdraw funds and put it into different things. I mean, that's pretty advanced level stuff, right? But could you imagine? Vince and I know of these things. And myself, until about a year ago, I mean, I finished studying a good few years ago now. I didn't know the ins and outs of that at all. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, Vince, but it's pretty incredibly daunting even thinking about it. Yeah. Coming to terms with having to gra- you know, grapple with your finances, is, it's a challenge in and of itself. Like You have to be diligent with how you save and spend and different banks and investment funds and like, do I get a financial advisor? This is a heated topic, right? I mean, in hindsight, we kind of know that. And guys, this is not financial advice. So we should have definitely prefaced <laughs> that at the beginning. Very, very explicitly <laughs> of this podcast. Not yes, yes. Let's let's we'll put that in the description. Not financial advice. But there's studies that go on that that kind of say, you know, these are the best things to do. And the best thing to do is pretty much never go against the market. Right. Um, it's pretty much to invest in in um, in funds and some of you don't even know what funds are and you're fine. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, but basically to invest in funds that cover a wide variety of asset classes, portfolios, equities, and things like that, because research has shown that an individual trader, when they're day trading, when they're doing their own thing and when they're trying to personally beat the market, because they feel like they have better information, the market always wins. Um, I think the, I think it was about 90% of the time, uh, traders could not outperform the market. If someone just invested their money into an index fund, you know the likelihood is that they would come out on top if they were doing some one-to-one comparison. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, so yeah, I don't know if you have hmm. on TikTok, like everyone's proposing their specific way to beat the market and be part of that ten percent. But the likelihood that they would even tell you if they did know how to beat the market is is very unlikely. Uh, basically zero, I, I'd say. That's that's true. They're just making more competition for themselves. You know, it's kind of like we're both gamers. We mm-hmm. it it feels like if you release that information, it's going to get patched. Some authority is <laughs> going to hook onto it. Like crypto didn't get patched. There weren't really many laws governing crypto until it really blew up. Then governments got interested in taxing and tracking funds and things like that. Right? Yeah. No crypto bro, all the way back then would have wanted you to get involved. Now, was in crypto beta, bros want basically. you to. <laughs> it was crypto was in beta exactly good way of putting it but now everyone wants you involved in crypto because they're worried about the value deteriorating even more they need more eyes on it <laughs> it's kind of like a pyramid scheme but okay so that's that's the first reason i thought of um i don't know if you have anything to add to that vince in particular if you have any anecdotes you can throw but I, yeah, I think the financial sector is tough man i definitely agree i think in my final year, I had some finance classes where we discussed a lot of things you mentioned earlier, various trading positions for stocks where, you know, you bet that the stock will go down, you bet that it'll go up, you bet that it'll kind of stay around where it is now, and various instruments that they call it. But to like actually apply it or, or rather to apply it and have it be effective in most cases and know when to use it. It's still something that I don't think even university level students would be able to do with some proficiency. And and I definitely agree that there's mm. a almost predatory financial advisor scheme where, you know, if, if you want your money to be 
well-maintained, more than likely the person that you're like giving access to the money to make trades and potentially give you X return per year is, is not going to be able to. Because like you said, 90% of the people don't beat the market. And so yeah, it's, I swear I've seen so many I, videos where a chimpanzee or a goldfish or just like a random algorithm uh, had outperformed some of the best traders uh, in, in like a span of time in six months or three months, just because it's such a complex thing, the stock market and options and derivatives and all that, that there's no real secret to it. You just have to be either consistent or just be risk averse or diversify. There's no one trick that can make you rich. There, I mean, exactly that. There, there literally is, and I even, I even chatted to someone today at work and they were like, have you seen this guy on TikTok? He's making like thousands by doing something and shows me his TikTok. And I just have to tell him like, there's, there's no get rich scheme in this world. Absolutely. Like money just doesn't appear. Like it takes hard work and luck, you know, and you know, then then something will happen. But I I love how you said it's this predatory scheme. And I love how you made reference to to uh shorting, which is mm. basically buying insurance on on how stocks outcomes, which is betting against or betting for stocks. Yes. And I tried to explain this to my girlfriend. Um, Vince will know my girlfriend, um, but essentially my girlfriend is sixth-year medical student, basically a doctor, and I was trying to explain The Big Short to her. For those of you who haven't watched <laughs> The Big Short, great well. film. Yeah, yeah, and and The Big Short is all about a few different traders and and fund managers betting against the housing market and betting that it will fail. So they were shorting the housing market. And that is eventually what happened. The housing market failed and the global financial crisis happened in 2008. But this idea that, and this shook my girlfriend, that you can just bet against anything in this world. But in a, in a financy way, it's now called an instrument. Oh, yes, no, no, yes. no. I'm not betting against something. No, no, no. It's a financial instrument. It's actually, it's an asset or it's a liability until it becomes, no, you're betting against something. And that, it's, I, I, I didn't know how to respond to that question from her. She was like, you can just bet against anything. I'm like, you know what? Like, yes. The same way if you buy health insurance, you're betting that at some point you will be sick. Those who don't buy health insurance are betting that they won't get sick and that the three or whatever percent they put in of their income per month is useless. Anyway, uh, I do digress, but that was the point. That was my first point that I thought of. And there's an untold level of depth and intricacy there, but I didn't even want to go into that because I thought my second point and how I delved into it was so much more fun and interesting and thought-provoking. Before you carry so, on, I want to ask, hmm. so do you think like these kind of industries in the financial sector deliberately, deliberately use kind of obscured terminology or kind of tricksy language to kind of make things seem more complicated when it's literally, as your, your girlfriend said, just betting. Um, do you think that's part of it as well? I, it's a bit of both. There's definitely instruments and financial models that are indescribably smart 
and yeah. complex to set up and, and undertake, right? But also a large part of it is not that smart and it's just it's just like gut feeling. Yeah. So I don't know if it's deliberately obtuse. Like I said it's deliberately obtuse, but it might not be, maybe to a certain extent. But it feels like there's some kind of deliberate obsolescence. I don't know if you've heard that. When when manufacturers create a product but they create it to only last a specific, specific amount of time. Like you have oh. to come back and buy a product. Like the, I don't know how that really applies, to be honest. But it feels like there's some nefariousness going on. You know, there's there's people that just want to keep your money in the sector. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm getting kind of I'm getting this kind of conspiratorial at this point. But it does at least feel that way. And if something feels that way for me, who knows of a lot even if i don't practice it i can only imagine what it feels to someone who isn't in as fortunate as a position as i am so that's why i kind of phrased it in that manner i see but okay cool my second point um the second point as to why you're poor explained (laughs) is you were born this way it is as simple as that in economics there's these terms called systemic systemic inequality class mobility different countries have better or lower class mobility so you could go from middle income to middle upper income more easily and there's different indexes you can use to track that and how proficient countries are but i want to go even deeper all right i want to talk about someone who we actually heard about when we were studying vince who thought really deeply about this um let me give you some clues and see if you can uh, remember who this person is. Okay. I'll give you okay. a quote. How about that? How about I'll give you a quote. <laughs> You're good at quotes. I'll give you a damn quote. And I like this quote. A just, soci- a just society is a society that if you knew everything about it, you'd be willing to enter it in a random place. Oh, my God. I some, just... Does that give you some inkling? The... My brain just unlocked like this graph where I just that like spawned memory of this graph that we learned about about the specific topic where it's kind of like a I don't even know what graph you're referring to. I'm embarrassed, but if you're talking about the same guy, you must show me this graph afterwards. Yeah, it's just it's essentially just like a Okay, I'm going to do a terrible job of describing it, so I'm just going to take but okay, a guess. You, c- you can't guess just yet, but okay, you okay. have an inkling right now. I think so. This is someone who is considered one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, he is someone that was a lecturer at Harvard, a professor at Harvard, rather, a professor at Princeton, Harvard until he retired, someone who got two prizes, um, one for... Uh, I think, what was it? Some Humanities Prize in 1999. But he's quite a distinguished person, but a philosopher that had a unique interest in economics. And I'm about to say his name, and I want to see if you can figure out where I'm going with this. His name was John Rawls. Okay. This? I, John that, Rawls? That wasn't the name in my brain. I don't, I, I, I don't remember him specifically. Okay, you're thinking of someone else, but... Please, let's chat about this someone else you were talking about because I love looking at graphs and how they explain. But all right, Rawlsian philosophy. This is a, a gentleman 
John Rawls, American-born, American-stayed, really, um, very influential at his time. And he actually participated uh, in World War II. He came back, completed his PhD, and wrote a book, okay? It's called A Theory of Justice. Actually, let me look if that's correct. A Theory of Justice... Yes, Theory of Justice, John Rawls. I got it correct. I'm so smart, even though I didn't write it in my notes. <laughs> and this is to do with... But okay. Like the, the where you're placed at birth, or like the just society? Where you're placed at birth, right? Exactly. So John Rawls, he really wanted to dig deep and use economic thinking to figure out how we as a population could build a just society, right? And he ended up coming up with such a unique... Uh, it's a thought experiment, right? But it's okay. something more, okay? His thought experiments is colloquially called the veil of ignorance. Does that ring a bell to you? We learned about this in business ethics. Uh, very slightly. It has been a few years. Very slightly, but cool. His basic premise was that according to the difference principle, and for those of you who don't know what the difference principle is, it's one of the two principles, main principles he covered in his theory of justice. The first was uh, liberalism and the democracy rules. I could mm. be wrong about that one. But the second, the difference principle was that if some if a law is passed in society, the lowest that society have to at least benefit from it, right? So no law could pass that doesn't it doesn't have to necessarily equally apply to everyone but it should favor those at the lowest end of the spectrum or at the very least benefit them so it can't just benefit those at the top this so is like a social point the difference yes yes he was very much inspired by john locke who who came up with the social contract uh, the social uh, social contract is basically describes how a society after a certain amount of time will start to start uh, creating norms just like how if you walk in the street, it's not a societal norm to shout out loud about pretty much anything. Although it's perfectly legal to do within, you know, within reason, I suppose. Mm. Um, things that these societal contracts aren't illegal, but they're definitely there. There are preferences in society. So he kind of drew drew from John Locke's uh, John Locke's teaching and this thought experiments, right? He described it as if someone wants to figure out the most objectively good positioning for society or a specific situation is that they have to purposefully become ignorant of their own upbringing and circumstance. All right. The way he described this is that one would have to come from their circumstance, pass a veil of ignorance and sit in their original position before they knew who they were, what their race is, how their upbringing, their wealth, their inequality, their lack of inequality. I don't know. It doesn't matter. They just had to completely forget who they were. Present within themselves with a situation. And if they were any random person on earth, they could be the poor person in a situation. They could be the rich person in a situation. They could be somewhere in the middle. But the very key thing is they know they can be any one of those people. So if you're in this original position, what would your choice for the outcome of the situation be? Right. Now, this is very interesting because economics, and I told you he was very interested in economics. Economics is very much in, 
is very much driven by an assumption that humans are self-interested. Mm. Okay, Humans in general will go for their best outcomes. But if you think of someone who's passed the veil of ignorance and is sitting in their original position, how do they know their best outcome? They could be anyone in a specific situation. They could be the person who, in today's standards, would be looked at you know, unfavorably or who would have a bad outcome. Interesting. He, he, he took it even a step further. He said all the souls on earth, if they wanted to create a better civilization, a better economic structure, if they all, before the earth was born, passed this veil of ignorance and sat in the original position, how would the earth look if they constructed it? Because if you think about it, all of the original positions, everyone there, self-interestedly, would want to create the fairest earth there is because they could be they could be a child of a slum they could be a noble man's wife for example like it doesn't really matter um but the self-interest would lead them to coming to the most fair and just society because they would essentially all be scared of making it too unjust because they could be on the other end of the spectrum right they forget they forgot their past selves they could be um they could be slumdog. Uh, they could be. They could be some impoverished child on the streets. Yeah. So, so that's that's John Rawls, and I really like that because it has such a strong economic backing. Like, okay, economics assumes this. Humans are self-interested. Let's put humans in this thought experiment. Bam. Let's have self-interest fuel a just society instead of wrecking it apart, like it usually does like greed usually does. Um, did any of that ring a bell to you? It really did. Um, not like like the, the broad overview of it really did, but not the specific like uh, points that you mentioned. But the idea that like, it's such a fascinating idea. I mean, it really goes to show that like, it's, it is such a shame that we don't have that almost full information of where we're going to be uh, born or otherwise end up in, because I think absolutely everyone would, out of own, their own self-interest, push for something more of an equal situation. And, and that yeah. idea of self-interest ending or like causing a greater good for the economy, I feel like also pops up in other economic theories, um, whether it be... <coughs> demand and supply or like the invisible hand i feel like it's a it's an interesting thought experiment where self-interest can lead to a fair scenario for everybody which is a little bit counterintuitive people's interests man yeah it, it it feels counterintuitive i completely agree but this one was just so so stark to me because you can actually use this thought experiment anywhere right if you look at it if you Let's say something happens in your life. You just put your and you don't. You're conflicted on how you should respond or how you should have responded. You just take a step back, forget who you are for a second, quite literally. Try to do that to the best of your ability, and then assess the situation as if you were everyone and no one at the same time. Yeah. Really weird stuff. Like I for this for this podcast. As soon as I thought a bit more deeply about it, this was 
the most this this jumped out to me as the most interesting thing I can speak about because it actually touched me when when I was learning about it first. Um, I, I I did really like how that self interest fuels a just society. Would you as well recreate really, society and? Mm-hmm. I think it would. Oh, I would. Sorry, uh, especially given the circumstance that I would have the power to kind of redistribute things in a, in a more fair way. But yeah, I think economics, out of all kind of sciences, if you could even call it that, has a, a real deep root in philosophy, just because you're dealing with people in most cases. Um, and I think it's one of a lot of topics where looking at it from a philosophical point of view kind of gives you the answer. Um, like when you were talking about it now, kind of putting yourself in another situation or like removing your identity, it like made me think of the, the, the term of ego in Buddhism and like how you can yeah, get rid of that feeling of identity and you'll have like a better life overall or at least you won't be mm. as affected by things. Um, but it's a very yeah, like interesting. Stoicism, it, it, it lends itself. I mean, he was a philosopher for a reason, hey? He, he really <laughs> it's, it's, it strikes you hard when you think about it, man. No, absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, those are my two reasons why you're poor. And I may have done a poor job explaining them, but I explained it nonetheless. So, so yeah. Vincent, have what have you cooked for us, King? What have I, you been stirring in your research? I'm very interested. I think you did a great job. I think when it comes to this topic, there's there's no single thing that we can present that will answer the question entirely. We can only look at little small slices of why you're poor. Every time I say it, I, I find myself giggling at how silly of a title it is. <laughs> Someone's going to, I want one of our audience members to uh, snip it, like cut it out and put it as like a sound bite in a TikTok video. Like, <laughs> just take it out of context completely. <laughs> but yeah, for my topic, I, I want to re-emphasize that there's a lot of things that determine someone's socioeconomic status from like, as you said, where you're born or the living situation the economic conditions that you're in and other big picture stuff that we're never going to be able to cover entirely. But the reason that I chose the topic that I chose today is not only because it's super interesting, but I have a little bit of a personal connection to a part of it. And I'm going to be chatting about wages and specifically the minimum wage and also the newly created, or at least relatively new, gig economy but do you know the gig economy do you know what that is no no i don't know what that is okay okay well while i have you on the edge of your your seat i will start off with wages and the concept of a minimum wage this concept of of having a base pay that companies to give to their employees isn't that new or rather like it's it's not as recent as you might think um, but it came about around the 1800s where you had this push of industry with the Industrial Revolution, things kind of slowly beginning to get to a point of production that was unseen beforehand. 
this idea that these businessmen would have to pay their labor, which is one of the most expensive parts of the production process, a set rate wasn't really taken well by businessmen of the era, nor by economists either. The economic thought at the time was that if you increase the wages of your workers, then by sheer laws of supply and demand, which is what they were working with at the time, there would be more unemployment as a result, which kind of sounds counterintuitive, but the basic premise is that if you had set a essentially a price floor for your labor, the price of the goods produced by that labor would be higher than the natural equilibrium of the supply and demand graph. And so seeing that, owners and businessmen in those industries wouldn't hire as many workers as a result, and unemployment would increase. But as time went on, the idea of a minimum wage became more and more prominent. And after a few decades or so, it was actually implemented in several countries over time. The very first was New Zealand in 1838. And by America, basically a century later, which confounded me that America only had a minimum wage in like the 1940s, basically. Um, I actually saw that in, I saw that when I was researching John really? Rawls, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah. He, he did some commentary about it in some Slater. Was he for work, or against yeah, the was, minimum wage? No, he was very for. He was very for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Goated, goated man then. <laughs> it's a base take. But yeah, so to combat the effects of the Great Depression uh, and other economic factors, America also implemented a minimum wage. And soon they saw that this had a quick success. Uh, when economic studies were done. And soon countries like Australia, uh, Uruguay, and the rest of Europe uh, also implemented them. And overall, it's been a good thing. Those countries in particular, Australia, New Zealand, Uruguay, and Europe, have a, done a good job not only maintaining the minimum wage, but keeping it up to date with inflation, which is a big talking point. So they regularly update their policies, have talks with the unions about what their workers need and what their workers are worth. But if we want to look at a not so great example of the minimum wage being kind of maintained, we only need to look at America. Uh, and there are two main key factors that Americans and certain other parts of the world are very poor with regards to the minimum wage. The minimum wage currently, as it stands, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. This kind of changes depending on where you are in America. Certain states have it higher, but the base that you have to pay no matter what is $7.25. And this has been around since 2009. That has been the base floor for over 12 years, which if you kind of think about the... The, the federal... The federal rate hasn't changed for 12 years. Yes. <laughs> serious. Yeah. And what? if you think about the I can't believe that. I can't economic believe things that. that have happened since 2009, you're like, mm, maybe that should change. But it's, it's even worse than you think, because in all honesty, the Americans who are earning the minimum wage right now are getting a very bad deal. 
because if you take that minimum wage and kind of put it on a graph over time and then change all the numbers to real terms, as in what they would be worth today, the money that they're earning now is the lowest that minimum wage workers have earned for, for 80 years. Because at one point, for example, in 1968, if we convert the minimum wage to today's terms, they'd be earning about $13.46. How, how crazy is it? It makes my blood boil, to be honest with you. It's just insane. I'm not even from America, and you just hear the horror so, stories just constantly, man. It's it's it really is. And to to me the the question of why you're poor, um, I think maybe because I, I had seen things about the minimum wage really struck me as the most obvious choice. But kind of diving deeper into it, it, it struck me as really strange of why on earth has this minimum wage kind of stayed bottled bottlenecked? Uh, at such a low rate since the 1950s, can I, essentially. Can I hazard a guess? Can I hazard a guess? Go so, here's, I'm not saying this is justified at all, but a potential reason okay. why I could see a government not being super keen on keeping inflation or keeping their wages tied to inflation, you know, quite hand in hand, is because in their eyes, it probably becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, Right. They're giving a substantial, they're essentially inflating money a substantial degree by increasing minimum wage. Um, because the minimum wage affects a lot of right. people in the society, right? Lots of people are on minimum wage. That will have a substantial impact on money supply and money demand, which will likely increase inflation even further, right? So I could see why they wouldn't want to. But it's a bit of a rubbish reason because it's a minimum wage for a reason. The minimum wage is there to stop people from getting yeah. exploited. <laughs> but you're kind of just you're kind of just hiding the exploitation behind the skies of uh, <laughs> it's actually bad for everyone if we uh, if we increase your right. minimum wage. I know that's just some reason that that I was thinking. I, no, I think that's fair. I think that there's other things that the government could be doing to make the lives easier of, of people who are earning a minimum wage that doesn't directly have to be increasing it. But like researching it further, what really confused me about like why perhaps the minimum wage hasn't changed, especially in the context of the fact that since the 1950s, comparing the global production, or if we're just looking at America, the Americas, uh, production has exponentially increased overall. Their output and on kind of a global scale has shot up exponentially. I, I was curious why that part of it didn't in, influence the minimum wage. And so I, I took a look at perhaps maybe this was a trend for all workers at all levels of a company. Maybe nobody was kind of reaping the, the fruits of this increased production. So I took a look at the wages of CEOs over the same period of time. And I actually want to play a little bit of a game with you here. So in 1964, a CEO generally made 20 times more 
than the typical worker, not, not a minimum wage worker, just a typical worker. How, how much do you think uh, in 2020, how much more do you think CEOs earned? So I think I actually did see the statistic, but I want to see if I can remember it. Okay. I was going to be all smart and guess a rough number, but, but now I, I think I might have got it wrong. So I think it's something like, 330 to 350 times like it's so i think i heard 300 that is in there yes mm. really, really close 398 percent um 390 oh my god <laughs> so basically 400 more than the typical work so if you can see the picture i'm painting so the reason why you might be poor is because a lot of the fruits of the production that a majority of the labor does doesn't go to the laborers themselves, but only the kind of wealthy elite that has been there, slowly growing their wealth as the economy has exponentially grown. And I, I don't feel like I'm saying anything but revolutionary. Vince, what about trickle-down economics? Think about it, man. Do you <laughs> know, apparently trickle-down economics, that phrase was coined by a comedian who was making fun of of wealth inequality that could be wrong but i'm pretty sure i saw that on reddit and you know people who people people defend that phrase to the death and i'm just like if that's really the origin of that phrase that is the funniest thing ever like i can't believe it but okay but is it percent did you say percent or times like 398 times or 398 percent more i just it would sorry three hundred and ninety eight times, times. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. So the the picture I'm painting here is that compared to at least the sixties, uh, be it because of macroeconomic and other policy changes that essentially tax the wealth less or tax the wealth more during those times, we we live in a society which is a terrible <laughs> thing to start off a sentence with, where the low to middle class workers are poorer than they have ever been. Or at least they're not getting as much of the pie as they used to. So this pretty awful situation that workers are living in today, there's some ways to get around it. But they're not the kind of equitable ways that we were speaking about earlier. Uh, there are other things that workers have to do in order to pay their bills and essentially get themselves above the line when the minimum wage just keeps getting worse and worse over time. But before I get over to the gig economy, I want to start off with a, as, as per usual, quote for a quote. Um, I want to ask what you think of this quote in particular. So it says, the gig economy is empowerment. This new business paradigm empowers individuals to better shape their own destiny and leverage their existing assets to their benefit. I'm not going to tell you who said it uh, just yet, but what, what do you think? the gig economy? Um, <coughs> it sounds like a pyramid scheme, but is it someone mm. taking on multiple jobs? Is that what it is? Is it? Yes. Is that the gig? Are you doing different gigs? So, kind of. But what what do you think of the idea of the gig economy? I, 
the gig economy is essentially um, kind of like side hustles. I I don't know what it is, Vince. I, I, I can't give any thoughts. I, okay. I can't. If no I, problem, no if problem. If it is what I think it is, it's somewhere between Yas Queen and that's pretty sad that you have to do that. Like somewhere in the middle there. Like I feel like <laughs> it's definitely frowned upon that people can do more things than one. But there's kind of a reason that sure. you shouldn't put yourself in so many positions, right? I don't know. Yeah, I I've, the, I feel like there's a lot of unfair making you. Yeah, <laughs> suppose I thought you 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 would kind of have a, an idea of what the gig economy is. But this quote in particular is by John McAfee, um, who's not a geek guy by any means, um, and it was a bit of a mis- misdirect because we're going to be talking about as you kind of slightly alluded to how terrible the gig economy is, and maybe another reason why you're poor. Uh, in addition to the minimum wage. Damn. But to give you the full picture and not ask you any questions about what the gig economy is before you even know what it is, uh, here's the context. Before like the 2010s, you maybe had two types of employment. You had full-time jobs and you had part-time jobs. And then as we kind of move through that decade, a new type of work enters into the market that becomes a staple alternative but also addition to people's income. Freelancing, essentially. This kind of new form of work has recently exploded and the global freelance platform, this this market, is expected to reach about $12 billion by 2028. And a large portion of this mainly freelancing economy is centered in the United States, where about 36% of their workers say that they're freelance, which mainly comprises of e-hailing, I was going like to say Uber, Uber, but 36%? Um, wow. Exactly. Yes. Or uh, things like Airbnb. That might also broaden the idea of what freelancing could be. And to be fair to freelancing, this type of work where you're not necessarily employed by company or an industry, you are employed You're like a contractor for them, right? You're like a contractor that has to meet their standards. Exactly. How stuffed up, how mad does that sound? (laughs) Like, no, you you just meet our standards as a company, but we'll allow you to freelance for us. Ha-ha. Contractors, exactly that. But before we get to like the negatives of it, there, there are some perks to to give it some credence. You you are independent and you can set your own hours. And I think in this kind of uh, contemporary setting, a lot of those qualities are very attractive to workers. Being able to work on things that you want to do, not being you know held by the man in in whatever business you're in, having to appease a boss that you don't really like, and while it does require some more responsibility, setting your own hours is also a very useful thing to do. If you have a dynamic kind of household where you have to take care of children and such, but there are certain negatives that are becoming more and more apparent that companies are pushing down contractors and freelancers throat. As you mentioned, there's 
a lot of kind of there's a lot of power in the companies in that they as you said can choose to just not employ you you have to adhere to their standards and it's very open to exploitation freelancers are consistently paid lower rates uh, than kind of workers who are employed by businesses as you can imagine as well as not having the employee rights and benefits that you would have working at a company such as health insurance your retirement fund uh, many sort of things that protect you discrimination don't come with freelancing you also don't have a stable income because in many cases working on a gig if we take uber for example you might not get any trips because of environmental situations it could be raining a lot people don't want to go out or in the case of airbnb uh, you just might not have a home that people are interested in renting um but nevertheless you don't have a lot of benefits that working at a company grants you and they did a study where they took uber in particular and kind of averaged out how much uber drivers earn specifically in america if you took it to an hourly wage and it turned out to be around 12 days. but keep in mind you don't have the benefits you don't have sick leave there's nothing that uber really provides you as a contractor that you would otherwise get from working at a proper company and so this discussion of exploitation and low pay uh, for contractors is becoming more and more a realization that gig work is almost this thing that you have to do in some cases because of this minimum wage but it's not a great position to be in for a majority of people who do it any any thoughts on that so far a lot of thoughts but the biggest one was that I know Uber's been in, in some lawsuits and stuff, especially in California and LA. I mean, I know their business model dies if if minimum wage laws get applied to their, their drivers and things like that. So that was one thing. But the second thing is that it's so hard. Okay, I'm not saying it's hard as a consumer. Let me rephrase that. It's just grasping, because I like Uber. I like the convenience. I like how cheap yes. it is. I want it to stay as an individual, right? I think we can both agree on that, right? Like, it's convenience. Why would I want that price to Absolutely. increase? But it's why the model works. But when you see behind the window and you see what's happening, it makes you want to stop. And it's so hard to dissociate yourself from what you want and what should be. It's like the whole, like, do you tip someone at a bloody restaurant, man? Like, oh, my word. Just, it's just this kettle of worms that you you don't even want to think about. You just want to pay the tip and just, like, go away and just, you know, hope you don't have to think about that horrible <laughs> situation that, that servers and waiters are in in many countries, right? Um, same with Uber. I want to press That's the button. Amazing. I want the ease of convenience. But you know, I also want them to have better pay and better working standards and benefits. But crossing that bridge and you know self-actualizing that is tough. These are really these are 
kind of unsolvable problems. Because, I mean, you explained a situation where productivity actually increased when a minimum wage was implemented, right? But that was for a society. So, like, what happens if minimum wage gets implemented for Uber? Does it, maybe I'm predicting it to just doom and gloom and fall, like Uber is promising it will, but maybe something doesn't happen. Maybe the demand for on-the-go shuttle services is high enough to keep it alive and relatively cheap. I don't know. I think there's like a I mean, socialist part in me that basically says like, in a lot of cases, what was said about the minimum wage, you know, it's just going to create more employment. And then it ended up being better for not just workers, but society as a whole to implement that minimum wage when there wasn't one before. I think the overview, I suppose, that I got from looking at the minimum wage and the gig economy as was that there's this kind of adaptation that low to middle class workers now have to do because there's not enough for them in the economy. They're earning a minimum wage, but in most cases that isn't enough to uh, cover things like their health care or if they, you know, have children to cover those expenses and things like that. And so, as you mentioned with waiters, it's like this kind of cultural norm now to like, oh, you're not getting paid enough. So you have to subsist of my gratitude to make a living and actually, you know, kind of a decent life instead of the restaurant or whoever just paying you a decently hourly wage. wage. And that kind of parallels to what I'm seeing with gig economy uh, in that people aren't earning enough. So instead of being granted more of that slice of pie as companies are earning more, uh, as CEOs are earning times and times and times more than their typical worker, is that they're just being told to get another job, you know, drive for Uber in your spare time. But even that, I think, is not really a good and real solution yeah. to the issue. I mean, my solution would just be like, take the, 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 the profits from a company and be like, okay, a portion of this, a large portion of this goes to the people who have like but a That, is, that is what a systemic um, big flaw is. When someone sees all the choices yes. presented to them and none of them benefit them enough, especially in proportion to what the other person is getting, that is a systemic you know, flaw of a society, 100%, you know, you're being exploited for your, yeah. I mean, I don't know, exploited is a big word, right? But you're not benefiting. Like You are putting in time, efforts. I mean, I'm not even want to get into the labor theory of value, right? But it's absurd when mm. every single avenue available to you is just propping up someone's mountain of wealth. That's tough, man. That's yeah. really tough. I'm not in that position, but I can think of a few things worse. Um, Rawls. Where's John Rawls? We I, need him. I, I <laughs> <laughs> we need to just, re just reset. Yeah. Let's just reset him. But this I kind of had a... a the gay economy in particular, I had a personal connection to because I have worked in some capacity yes, within the Yes, yes you have. Um, 
And I can attest to the fact that like the the whether it be the platform that I worked for or the companies and clients that I was uh, like being serviced to work for, there's a lot of these things that like you know echoed. Uh, I think, I mean, to be fair, actually, even the work that I do now, um, it's technically a concept now that I think about it, because I do get paid time off and sick leave and things like that, but uh, there's no kind of like health insurance or retirement plan or anything like that that I am like having yeah, contributed There's no by deductions the that you have to do. There's no contributions. It's just, yeah, I think that's so many... I mean, listen, I haven't been in the job market for ages, right? We're both pretty young guys. Yeah. But, like, I don't know what the norms are. Like, no one's really told me the norms. So if this is our introduction into kind of working society and we end up thinking these are the norms, like, you got to feel like people up top are going to just keep pushing their luck, you know? Keep being like, okay, let's push these positions back a little bit not necessarily in terms of maybe wages but benefits sure it's a good good thought yeah yes uh the the good good news is that uh i think there are kind of discussions about this currently and i think there are especially at least in the united states and some other countries as well there's talks about like how contractors can get or rather avoid a lot of these things that we mentioned, whether it be exploitation or not having like bargaining power on how much they should charge and the benefits that they receive while they're in their term of employment with companies uh, that I think should hopefully change within the next couple of years as this new form of work becomes kind of a staple for a lot of people, even though realistically i don't like the idea of it being kind of like this thing that you have to, it's so crazy you know? because the states always flaunts their very low unemployment rates and you just told me that 38 percent of laborers or 36 or something like that are, are yes. freelancers like whoa <laughs> they do freelancing on, on top of their work goodness that's too much man and they're probably still struggling yeah, that's mad. Yeah. But it's a bit of a, a somber tone. Do, do you want a fun little fact to kind of lift the mood a fun a little bit? fact, man. Give it to me. I need it. I need to inject okay. it into me. We called it <laughs> So the term freelance, do you want to guess what kind of mm, coined the term? Origins of the, of the word freelance. Sure. Okay. Um... Free okay, lance. What is a lance? It's an object. It's a it's a spiky it's a spiky object. <laughs> Free is it was it like a horseman that used to go to fairs and used to joust people? Like just just is it? Oh. Don't tell me that's correct. It's not correct. Okay, that's that's what I would think. That's my so origin you, story in my mind. Are you saying so? Like a, a person would like yeah. show up to fairs and be like, like a oh, I'll pay. If yeah, you pay me yeah, to, yeah, yeah. He's a freelancer. I, see, I don't I know, man. Like, it made <laughs> sense when I thought of it. I, I really like that definition, but unfortunately, it's not the yeah. not the correct one. Um, so the story goes: in the eighteen hundreds, uh, there was a battle going on between two English knights 
Uh, I was right was about Lord. knights. And I was listen. You were, you were. And this knight was facing off against this lord. Both of them powerful combatants and epic battle. Lord end up, ends up taking the win. And the knight that kind of was leading this army uh, takes his lance and offers it to the lord. And he basically says, like, me and uh, my army are yours for the taking. And so they essentially became lancers for this guy. And after the war was done, they didn't have any work. So they just went around basically being mercenaries, offering their lance for anyone who would pay them. And, yeah, offering the services of their free lances. Neat, man. I, I was shockingly close. I'm astounded. You were. I mean... I, I actually like your definition better, to be honest. Just the the idea of a guy showing up and like, do you want to like, see this cool trick? Yeah, uh, if yeah, you pay yeah. Me out. these tawnies, like, I'm really good. Like, look at my look at my CV, bro. I was, <laughs> I had a, I made the crowd cheer for me at all of these tawnies, man. But, but that is it's a nice anecdote. But all right, sure, man. That was yeah. a long episode. Wow, we <laughs> we chatted for a while there. I think that was sure. our longest so for sure. And um. Yeah, do you want to end us off, man? I will. Here's why you're poor. Uh, is a very, very interesting topic, as you've heard us talk about it. Um, and I think there's a lot of other things with that we didn't mention about kind of socioeconomic factors, many sort of little things that you might not even really know uh, that contribute to essentially putting down a lot of people's uh, livelihoods. So I recommend you go check that out. Maybe, you know, it might influence who you vote for or some policies that you want to enact in the future because, hells yeah, you can make that change if necessary. Um, also keep in mind that this is not financial advice, but nevertheless, I hope you found this episode entertaining. Please do hit us with a follow, rate us five stars. It really helps us with a you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform that you're listening to this on YouTube, even give us a like and a subscribe, please. And yeah, I hope to catch you all next time. This has been Vince and yeah. And this has been Devin and, and tell us why you're poor in the comments down <laughs> below. We'd love to hear it. Other than that, guys from the untold wealth crew, we'll see you in the next one. See ya. Cheers.